you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44, that can be found on page 1094 of your pew Bibles. Before reading, let's ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word and we turn to a text that explains the ministry of Christ, in fact, gives us a window into his life and into the daily routine, we pray that we would be in awe and that what we would see here is the authority of his words and that we would know we hear the same words in his word and when rightly preached, that we would respond in submission to them and that we would ultimately have through this text a great hope and our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, who has come to make right what is wrong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read Luke 4, 31 to 44, I want us to read it almost as if this is, or to understand it, I should say, as if this was in the newspaper. As if you would read a heading that said, A Day in the Life of Christ. And this newspaper article was written about this, this Christ who is around and about in the day and age. He's his current matters, and you're, you're reading an account of what this man did in, in one day, almost like there was today, I guess it would be like a film crew or a journalist or something who traveled with him for a day's time and wrote about it and wrote this article. The, way, the reason I say that is I want us to read it as it was intended, as the current eyewitness account of events of what happened in a day of Christ's life. Beginning in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Thus ends the reading of God's word. A day in the life of Christ. What does a day in someone's life reveal? 
if you were able to be a fly on the wall, if you were able to follow one for a day and see what would happen to their, their routine and what they did, their labors and their work, what would we see? Well, likely the interest of this would depend on who this person was, on what this person's role was, on what this person's job is. If you were to follow many of us, it would probably be quite a boring day to observe. We're ordinary, we live normal lives, but this would change if you were able to have a window and follow, say, the life of the president, to be able to follow a world leader or someone in power to see what they would do and see their ordinary activities all of a sudden become something amazing as you would think, oh, what they're signing, that document they're signing isn't just some slip that we might sign, just a piece of paper for some reason. No, they're signing something that affects the world, and they're just doing this before lunch. And then they go in a meeting, and this meeting isn't just a meeting like a school board meeting or something, which is important for our location and our life, but, but they're in a meeting that's actually something that affects the world itself. Peace. Peace across the globe, these type of things. See, to be able to observe a day in, in a life of world power, that would be quite something. Well, that's what we have here. We have a day, and you can see that in the way it begins. It begins with Jesus going down to Capernaum. And then he goes to Simon's house, and then the sun sets, and at daybreak, we read what he does. So you're, you're following this period of time. You're, you're following this one segment that Luke gives to us a day in his life. And what does a day in Christ's life reveal? Well, we see someone of great power. We see amazing activities. And this day in Jesus' life's life reveals a lot. It reveals power and authority. It also reveals compassion and care for people. It reveals the nature of what the kingdom is. It's, it's all in a day's work, what he does. He, he descends to Capernaum and preaches. Then he drives out a demon. Then he heals a fever. And then he heals many and drives out many more. Then he withdraws and, and seeks to pray. And then he tells them who want to constrain him that he must go and preach to the other towns as well, all in a day's work, a full day. And this passage shows that authority of Christ is something to behold. And that's what we should see here. You see, each of the, the aspects of this day present an authority and power of Christ. They're shocked first at just his preaching, at the authoritative word that they've never heard from any before. They're, they're shocked there that his words have this power. And then it's displayed in the fact that he's able to rebuke an unclean spirit, a demon. And then power over nature and illness, rebuking a disease. And then a purpose to bring that authoritative word to the surrounding regions as well, to bring the kingdom of God, in essence, to the surrounding regions as well. And that's his purpose, that's underlying it all, that's pushing him forward with what he must do. You see, he's not some miracle worker alone. He's not some wonder man. He's not some superhero alone. He has a goal he has an intent. You know, we fashion superheroes in, in our day and age, and what they do is their purpose is something like maybe to keep peace. That's about the highest realm they can, they can enter, and even in our minds, in these, these fake superheroes. But that's not what Christ is doing alone. He is bringing in a whole new world system, a whole new kingdom. That's his purpose, and that's his goal, and we see that. 
Christ possesses the power and is the only one to possess that authority. And we see it in our first point, the authority to rebuke demons. The authority to rebuke demons. Verse 32 begins at the astonishment of his teaching, which is a good build-up for what will follow. You see, the emphasis in, in this is placed on his authoritative word and his preaching. This is not the first and this is not the last time Luke will emphasize the preaching ministry of Christ as the most significant as the one that is his primary purpose to proclaim and preach the word, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And so that's what we see here. And Jesus' authority impresses the people. You see, they had been taught by those who would who would point to someone else. You know, we do that today. The authority with which pastors preach today is often something you would have seen that they would have seen. For, for example, you, you would say something like when Calvin says... The Heidelberg Catechism says, you know, these things are fine, but what we're doing is we're pointing to things. We're pointing to things that have been either proven through history or through the, the church as we hold to these confessions. You see, we point to other things to verify what we're saying. And yet it's Christ who comes and doesn't have any qualifiers. He doesn't have any of these things. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You see, that authority is dripping from his words. And they're astonished. This is not someone who's just coming and standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before him, saying, you know, Gamaliel teaches this about Isaiah 42. Not that they had the chapter numbers then, but that's not what Christ is doing. He is saying, this is the truth. I am the one. We saw that in our last text. Remember Jesus' sermon in Nazareth that serves as a paradigm for his preaching. What did he say? He, he said, I have come to proclaim deliverance. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is authoritative power. So Jesus' authority through his words astonishes them in his preaching. And this is no small point. We don't just want to skip over that to the, to the good stuff, no. That's the point, is the authority of his word. And then we see it displayed in what happens. What happens? Well, we see this demon-possessed man come. And the man yells at the top of his lungs. And it should be taken something like enough, that aha word. It could be understood more like enough or stop. Why do you interfere with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, this demon says. What something to hear, what amazing words to utter. This unclean spirit bears witness. And this is important because Jesus comes face to face with the enemy. And unlike as we saw a bit, a, little, a bit earlier with his encounter with Satan, when the spirit drove him to be tempted, he was driven out to face temptations. Here you see the authoritative power of a representative of the devil himself, an unclean spirit who no one can control. Who can command demons. Who? Who can rebuke those spirits that have unnatural power? We can't just utter words and have them listen to us. They would mock and laugh at us. But in the power of Christ's name, the power of Christ's word, the demon is in terror. This should give us hope. 
This gives us a profound hope. The authoritative power of Christ's word establishes our hope in the kingdom of God because this is the enemy. And look what Jesus does to the enemy. Ephesians 6, 11 to 12 tells us that what our primary battle is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we fight? Sadly, we have relegated the spiritual demonic forces to just a mere lip service. They're there, we might say. We're engaged in spiritual battle, and yet we are far, far too carnal, physical in the way we see it. It's there, it's out there, and perhaps we're engaged in it, but not really. We don't really think we are. We don't, it doesn't enter our mind on an everyday basis. But what Paul says and what the gospel shows, this is the primary battle. You're not raging war against the people of the world, but against the spiritual powers of the world. And our commander-in-chief has come against the primary forces, and he rebukes them, and they flee before him. He utters the word, They know who he is, and this gives us hope because our commander-in-chief has power against the primary battle. Demons affect us far more than we realize. And can can we explain all that? We can't. But we should acknowledge that. We should know that. And we should know that the way they affect the world is far more than just, yeah, they might have a spiritual influence. We know that they, and through their petitions, through what the Lord, we see this in Job, what the Lord will even allow them to do, they affect the world itself. We see demons in the Gospels bring about seizures. We see them bring about maladies, insaneness. We see them bring about great strength and power by which a madman can't be restrained and breaks chains. We see them bring all of these problems that affects the world itself. And so when Jesus comes and proclaims an authoritative word over them, he's getting past just the the evidences of what's broken in the world to the problem itself and to their very causes rebukes them in the primary battle. Most scoff at the idea of demons, and we should be careful. We should understand we are not to make over much of it either in the sense where we seek to assign a spiritual cause or to blame a demon for everything. That's not what we see in God's word. What we're supposed to do is recognize the principle and be aware that even the oppression and the things we face in this life has spiritual causes. And when we bring the gospel, what we're doing is engaging in a spiritual warfare. And that there are the minions of the devil, though greatly bound by Christ, those, that those minions, the devil himself, still prowls, still roars. And through the power of Christ, through our commander-in-chief, we go out and wage this war. You see in 1 John 3.8, what we see we see this, we see it explained clearly. First John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that is what he's doing. That is what he's doing in his own person. And it's what he does through the church still. He is active. 
Jesus' ministry is a ministry of the kingdom, and what he does, even in his authoritative word to demons and their rebuke, shows that the kingdom is established. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme in Luke. The Gospels, and Luke will continue to hit this home, that, the, that our Lord and Savior, he has authority over the spiritual forces. He's bringing in their demise, and beginning the age of the kingdom of God and the church. Jesus' miracles prove that Satan's power has been broken, and because of that, the kingdom has come. And we see this in his authoritative power, and so we gain hope. The authoritative power of Christ's word establishes our hope in the kingdom of God. You see, to appreciate that truth, you have to reorient the battle. You have to see that it is that battle waged against spiritual forces, and then we appreciate that truth all the more to see what he's doing and the power of his word. So that's the authority to rebuke demons. Second, his authority to rebuke disease. Jesus leaves the synagogue and heads to Simon's house. Now this almost sounds like our Sunday, you know. You could almost, there, here he is, the pastor had went to church. We call him pastor, they would call him rabbi. The teacher has been at the synagogue and now he's going to, to Simon's house. Likely it's for a meal. Text doesn't say, we could perhaps surmise that. He's going there to eat, but there is a problem. As he's there to visit, Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a high fever. Sure, many can relate to that now. How many of us are sick or have been sick? You can relate to the rather common maladies or, or, or problems of this life, to the sicknesses, to disease, to the everyday. It's a high fever. Now, I'm not trying to say it wasn't serious. The text is saying it's a high fever, but it's a fever. And what does he do? They ask him, they, they appeal to him, and he rebukes. The fever. That is an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? doesn't say that he, he comes and he just heals, puts his hand on her, heals her because of his touch. doesn't say that. It's he rebuked it. He spoke. His authoritative word was one to tell the fever in its rebuke to leave her, and it left, and it left so much. Now, we know what fevers are like. You ache, you have headaches, there's pains, you're tired, and even when it breaks, you still don't feel right. And yet, what happens? She immediately stands up and starts serving. Not only did he just break the fever, it was as if it was completely eliminated. It's as if it was never happened. And again, this is pure speculation. I'm only saying it just to, to give us an idea of the picture. She jumps up and starts making the dinner, let's say. There she is, bustling about the house, serving them. The fever's gone. And, and what do the disciples say? What do they think? Not only did he just preach authoritatively, so not only was it an amazing sermon, you know, we could put it this way, he's having a great day, you know? Amazing sermon, everyone's listening to it, authoritative power, drives out a demon, comes here, drives out a fever. All in today's work. Amazing things to witness. That should impress us more. You know, we sometimes think, like, well, it's a fever. It's not, as, it's not as bad as some of the other things he does. It's more impressive to drive out a demon, or it's more impressive to calm the, the lake and see these type of things. What I think is interesting is we have the power to do none of that 
So why is one that much more impressive than the other, as if we think we're closer to being able to heal a fever than we are to drive out a demon or something like that? No, all of this shows power beyond anything we could possess. Shows the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And you know what gives us hope to this too? It shows disease isn't natural and right. It shows that the kingdom of God drives out even these things about life. These everyday things we face, issues and problems that take our strength, that we have to deal with, even as we think they're just cold and flu season. It's just a part of it. It's not. It's not a part of it. By rebuking it, Jesus is showing that it doesn't belong and by using the same word he used to cast out a demon, he, there's making, he's making a connection here to what is unnatural. It's as if it's assigning it to the devil's realm. Not only does he rebuke a devil's minion, he rebukes the disease itself that doesn't properly belong to the kingdom of God, but properly belongs to the kingdom of the devil. And it's rebuked. He speaks, the fever is gone. It's, it's left. Jesus' miracles show the truth. Last time I had called miracles like kingdom appetizers. Others have called miracles audiovisuals of a coming reality. They're pieces of God's reign brought into his kingdom, and they provide for us a little bit of hope of what the kingdom of God will ultimately bring in. When there will be, will be no more affliction by spiritual powers, where there will be no more affliction by disease and fevers, he puts to right at all. J.C. Ryle says about this text, about miracles, they are all intended to fashion, fasten in our minds the great truth that Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Christ is the true antidote and remedy for all the soul-ruining mischief which Satan has wrought on mankind. Christ is the universal physician to whom all the children of Adam must repair if they would be made whole. In him is life and health and liberty. This is the grand doctrine, which every miracle of mercy in the gospel is ordained and appointed to teach. That's what his ministry is showing. That's what his daily life is showing. That's why we not only see his power, but we see his compassion and mercy that he would come to take away even these things from his people. That he cares about these things. He cares about their diseases. And so we see his authoritative power over demons. We see his authoritative power over disease. And now we see that he must preach the good news of the kingdom. He must preach the good news of the kingdom. We come to the end of this day in Christ's life. And notice what happens. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, he departed, and he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Remember, in his sermon at Nazareth, what we looked at last time, the people desired to have him there to do among them these works, amazing works and miracles. And Jesus did not do them. Jesus proclaimed instead words of judgment. Well, here what you see is the people want him again, but neither party understands it fully. You know, they have that natural reaction we probably all would have. Hey, if you find someone who can heal disease, drive out demons, you want them with you. Keep him here, right? 
And that's their desire. And yet what he says is that his, his very purpose for coming is one that must go to all the people, to the whole region, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And again, you see what's emphasized. It's not that he says, I must go into all the regions and heal. I must go into all the regions and drive out demons. That's a part of his ministry, for sure. And that's what he does. But what must he do? What's the divine compulsion in him driving him to do these things? What is it? Preach. What does that mean for us? It means we still receive what is primary importance in this life, the preaching of God's word. It means we are those to anticipate healing and desire that. But we're not those that lose sight of it, of the truth. Jesus has left in his church what is of most importance, proclaiming his word. And his word will bring all of this about. And the church will go out and the church will spread and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. The kingdom will come. Disease will be taken away. But what is of utmost importance is the authoritative word of God that is proclaimed. The good news of the kingdom that has come. And we get that all the time. We might desire, why can't Jesus be here to heal our diseases? Why can't he be doing those amazing works? And that's what the people here wanted. But what we should say is we are so thankful to have what is of most importance because those are coming. We must be patient. They will be taken away. But right now we have the word of life in front of us. The word of life proclaimed to us. The very task that Jesus must do. Remember that word must. It is, the, it is a translation of a, a Greek word that means it is necessary. We saw that as young Jesus in the temple said he must be in his father's house. He must be about his father's business. This is what he does here. He must preach. He says, I was sent for this purpose. It really elevates the gospel, doesn't it? It really elevates what he's doing there. The Son of God himself was keenly aware and devoted to the proclamation of the gospel, which was the word himself. His revelation of who he was and who he is to the people, this is what is most needed. This is why we don't go to miracle people, seekers, those who supposedly perform these things. That's not, not even what they do. They're liars, they're charlatans, they're those who seek to deceive and generally deceive those who are the poorest of the people, those who are in most need. That's not what we do. This was for the time of foretaste. This was the time of Christ to present those appetizers and audiovisuals of the kingdom. Those aspects of the kingdom haven't come through man yet, even if we can still pray and God can heal and does. We don't look for those miracle performances and we don't try to hang on to the man who can do them as they were trying to do in his day. We recognize the proclamation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so much greater. The kingdom of God presents a, a, a present truth, a future reality. It's an already, it's a not yet. We see so much of it that it, that so much of it that's come. And yet so much that we still anticipate and wait for. 
In many ways, the kingdom of God is the unifying theme of the Bible itself. It encompasses all of redemption. Why did we have the the Old Testament? Why were there so many kings in Israel? Because what it did is it took the fact that God is general king of the created world, right? He's God. He's created all. He's king. But what it did by, by taking that and making a kingdom on earth, what God was doing was showing his own cosmic rule of all things as the divine Lord and God is something that becomes special even to this earth itself. So he would set up a kingdom on this earth and then as, his, as it progressed, as the Old Testament progressed, what you saw is he would set his own chosen instrument on the throne. And then through exile and the prophets, what became promised was that this very special kingdom of God, where he would be their God and they would be his people in a very unique and special way, that would be administered through a man, a descendant of David, but, as we see especially in the people coming out of exile and the the promises of the prophets then, it would end in that it would be God himself to rule this kingdom. And so to proclaim that message is to proclaim the very truth of God's word. To encapsulate all of it, the kingdom comes and we see that God will establish his full, final rule over all things and reign by himself sitting on the throne. And we see that in Christ, the king who's come. Fundamentally tied into the idea of the kingdom is the message not simply that God is king, but that he will come as king and set right what sin has made wrong. I want to say that again. This is the center. This is the key. Fundamentally tied into the idea of the kingdom is the message not simply that God is king, but that he will come as king and set right what sin has made wrong. Do we trust that? With what you're facing, do you believe that our king can truly set right what sin has made wrong? That's the promise. That's the hope. He will. He does. He does it by healing a fever and driving out a demon and proclaiming the kingdom and healing the hordes of people who come to him as little foretastes and assurances that he has come to set right what sin has made wrong. And the truth of the kingdom of God is that one day we will sit and say, he did. Even in my life, even in my disease, even in my my pain and the thing that I face, even in the difficulty in my family, even in all of these things that I don't know how it can be made right, one day we will say, The king did it. He put it to right. What sin had made wrong, what the reign of the devil corrupted, what we had to face, he put to right. We see it in his authoritative word. and We should be in awe of it as well. Jesus' miracles present us this truth. Acts of revelation of the kingdom of God and hope. Kingdom of God to God's people is a message of profound hope and joy. This is a truth for every one of us. You who are older, you look at your bodies and see that your your life on this earth fades. And what will come? Well, what will come is the kingdom of God. 
You who are younger, you look at life and see it before you and in, in, in possible fear wonder, what is going to happen to me? What's going to happen? You're, you're a young family, perhaps. We have many here who in this stage. What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my spouse? There's so many things that could go wrong in this demonic world, we could say. The kingdom of God comes to set right what sin has made wrong, and he will. You see, we need hope. We need kingdom hope, because kingdom hope is so much greater. It's, it's, it's all of it. It undoes and applies to everything wrong. The king has come. Jesus' miracles in this story also present something else. We began with saying, let's think of this as a, as a journal article in a newspaper. Okay, If we read this as a newspaper article of current events of what's happening, you would not just read the newspaper article and say, hey, hon, look at this. You'll never believe what happened in Capernaum. That's pretty amazing, right? You would read it, and what it would demand is the question, who is this man? What does this mean? That's what Jesus and his miracles and teaching do. They raise an unavoidable question. What's our response to this? This has never happened. He possesses authority like no one else. He's doing things that no one else can do. He's proclaiming a message we've never heard. What does that mean? This is why we begin evangelism, and it's right to begin evangelism with the Gospels. Begin with the story, the true story, that automatically demands someone to read and say, is this true? Did this happen? What does this mean? That's what a day in the life of Christ and his ministry show. It also shows us that we have hope in another way. Our faith rests on this king and this kingdom. What we see here is that the kingdom will be as, only as strong as the monarch who reigns. If we have a weak monarch, the kingdom is weak. Our security is only as great as the authoritative power that the monarch possesses. But what we see here is Christ has it all. All the authoritative power, and so our kingdom to which we belong is strong. You know what this is? What we're doing here in reading this text, what we're, what we're seeing is kingdom hope and how... Think of it if you were living in a really run-down home. The, the home you're in is falling apart and everything about it needs fixing. And really what needs to happen is it needs to be, it needs to be bulldozed and rebuilt. That's the home you're in. And what's happened is you've been gifted an amazing mansion, an amazing home, but it, it's not yours yet. It's not fully yours yet. You can't take possession of it, but you have the keys to it. And, and you have the, the title. It's, it's yours. And what we're doing here is as if we're just driving over, just to drive by the home. We're taking our family and we're putting them all in the car and we're saying, there it is. Look where we're going. You see, what that does is it makes it easier to come back to the, the house that's falling apart. Because we have that hope. Look at this is where we're going. It's there. We have it. And there's so much excitement to do that, even in a, a just a normal way. You know, if you were getting an upgraded house, say. It's so exciting to go and drive and look at it and say, oh, I can't wait to be there. 
how much greater, how much more hope do you have in that scenario where, where what you're looking at, that home you can't wait to get to, to be with your very Savior is the kingdom of God. It's, it's the mansion he has prepared for each one of his children. This is the message. Our faith is tied to our king. And this passage from Luke, as well as, as all the passages from Luke, show us that every day of Christ's ministry was characterized by a message of good news of the defeat of sin and of the defeat of the power of the devil to rebuke the grip of evil, to rebuke sickness and death on the world, to establish the kingdom of life. A day in the life of Christ is an amazing day that reveals to us the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our great King, through your authoritative power, through your obedient walk, you establish the kingdom of God. And we see that that truth is, is so much greater than we even understand. And we have so much hope to know that what is broken and what is not right about this world you will and do put to right. You've, you've already begun it. We can see that in the gospel truth, knowing that you work all things for the good of your people, having experienced your very faithfulness, even in your word, proclaim the very fundamental aspect of your ministry that continues the proclamation of this good news, this is all what we see. You are putting it to right already. By the new life within us and by our faith, we see that, that what sin has, has undone, you've fixed in giving us new life in you. Give to us all the hope that this truth possesses, for we need it. We need hope in you that we would be those who can go out and fight in this, this war against the spiritual forces, as we go not in our power, but in your name. We pray, Lord, let your kingdom come in all of these things. Amen.